since I was young, I've I've had a little bit of a uncomfortable relationship with uh, art that is uh, self-consciously conscious, right? Art that is trying too hard to to send a message. For me, this often showed up in, in, in the conscious hip-hop around me. It often felt um, too didactic, like you're just gonna be told what you should know. And and it happens in all forms of art. And so when when I come across artistic expressions that that hold the essence of of, of what art is, that 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 come at you that that can sneak up on you and capture you in ways that you do not expect um, and still invite a sense of the just uh, call forth uh, a better way for us to be together in the world that is an art that that moves me it's art that stays with me and uh, Jawale Joe Willa Zolar is that kind of artist and you will be uh, getting to know more about her in this podcast episode. She is the founder of uh, ensemble, uh, legendary ensemble called Urban Bush Women. Uh, and she has forged a, a style of dance that has this uh, inherent uh, community engagement that, that calls forth uh, a civic duty that even includes community organizing without in any way compromising its artistic essence and it's 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 an art of the body and it's an art that is expressed to the bodies of black women and as such it holds um, a potency um, that is that is hard to uh, hard to marshal otherwise and uh, I'm just really excited for you to to hear from her my my name if you don't know me I'm Gibran Rivera. I am a teacher, I'm a guide, I'm a facilitator, a coach. And uh, with this podcast, I'm inviting you into an ongoing, decentralized conversation with remarkable leaders who are devoting their lives to the evolution of consciousness and culture. This conversation with Jawal is one of those conversations. Uh, I am uh, moved by the way in which she's holding her elderhood. Uh, she has this this perspective of decades, right? And she brings us kind of back to her own upbringing and to the the things, the ways in which she came into dance and the body as a way to make sense of of the conditions um, that black people experience in our country um we talk about the spiritual we talk about her own growth and evolution we talk some about uh the work that she's about to put forward that is most exciting uh i think you're gonna like this one and i invite you to give it your ear and your heart i'm always grateful for the gift of your attention enjoy Hi, Jaole. So good to see you and be with you. Hi, Javran. Wonderful to be with yes, you. Yes, it's been a while since we connect with each other, but I've been tracking your work over the years, tracking the work of people that you have trained. And uh, oh yeah, only ever more proud of knowing you. I know we've worked closely 
I have been able to serve your organization in the past. That was a, a really special experience, one I, I have bragged about. Um, and in a minute, I'll ask more about what you're up to and how your work is evolving and, and about your calling. But one of the questions I like to start the podcast with is I like to ask people, amazing people, what is uh, a belief that you have held to be true? What is a belief that, uh, that maybe has even shaped your identity that you might have changed your mind about, that you might think is no longer true or that you at least hold more loosely and and the reason why i find it important to ask this question is because uh, our society is so polarized and people are bunkering down into belief structures and they be wield these belief structures as weapons against each other and ideological stances become more like a religion than like ideas and I just love for listeners to see how truly remarkable people change their mind about things that they have once held dearly. So I wonder if there's anything that comes up for you there. Well, I think one of the things that, you know, I've always believed is that there's information being given to you all the time about the best choices, how to live your life, direction, if you're able to listen and not override um, that inner knowing, inner voice, God, however you want to think about it, um, you know, because of other desires or ambition. Um, I don't know that that has... I don't know that that has changed. I think some of the things that maybe have changed for me are just, I think when I was in my 20s, I really believed in absolutes, you know, in terms of particularly political stances that, you know, like I grew up in the 60s and 70s and it was, you're either for the revolution or you're against the revolution. And uh, that certainly, that idea that of absolutes, um, you, we, we carry one identity, we carry one community, we serve one identity, we serve one community, that has changed completely. And that what I embrace is complexity, that we are all very complex and our belief systems hold that complexity if we allow, if we allow it. Mm, that's beautiful. That, that, that opening up that happens if we allow it to happen, right? Sometimes people get only more yes. rigid. Yeah, that's yes. beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I appreciate when people, it takes some vulnerability to, to speak about this kind of change. So I'm appreciating it. Um, you are the founder of a well-respected dance troupe um, with the coolest name ever, Urban Bush Women. Well, that, that was inspired. And you all do a lot more than dancing. The dancing is the center of what you yes. do. You 
you engage community, you enter community and exit community with great awareness. You um, pay special attention to the development of your dancers beyond dancing itself. There's this, this holistic approach to how you go about what you do. Um, what can you tell us about urban bushwomen and about what got you there? Like, how, how did you become the founder of this remarkable group? It, you know, I, I've been doing a lot of reflection back to, you know, how did I get here and what, you know, what were the influences? And I think if there's anything that's consistent, it's the idea of ensemble, whether that's the jazz ensemble, ensemble theater, a group of people who are working together, committed to ways of working, and that there is leadership. So I've not been attracted to collective structures. I have been attracted to collaborative structures with, with leadership. And sometimes that leadership shifts, um, but with leadership. And I think that in jazz ensembles, which is, you know, some of my earliest musical influences, you know, you see that it's a group of people who are committed to playing together, whether it's for a night, an hour, or, you know, many, many years together. And they play together and there is a group sound and yet there is also an individual solo sound. And because you are playing within a part of a group, it doesn't mean you you get rid of your group. I mean, your individual um, sound approach thought. Uh, it means that the, the container that the ensemble creates makes a space for that to be that individual sound to be experienced at its most heightened sense. And that's what I've aimed to do with Urban Bushwomen. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is so awesome. There's two different things that you said there that are of great importance to me. I'm looking up a little bit because there is an essay that I just read yesterday. I'll, I'll name it for you in a second. But I'll start with this idea of leadership um, and the difference between collaborative and collective. And I feel like that's a bold and important thing to say today um, where the role of uh, a hierarchy based on experience, not based, based on maturity, based on development, not based solely on domination, um, has just completely misunderstood, been misunderstood. And we are yeah. in a moment where certainly in the nonprofit world and in social movement structures, maybe more than in private sector, the idea of leadership itself is being questioned. And so leaders are facing a kind of, yeah, a kind of challenge from people that work in their organizations simply because they're the leader. And the essay that I want to mention for you and for readers uh, that was just released by by Maurice Mitchell, who is the head of the of the Working Families Party, he has written a piece called "Building Resilient Building Resilient Organizations: 
towards mm. joy and durable power in a time of crisis. And, and he does a very bold job of, of taking this stand for the maturity that is gained simply with experience. Uh, and uh, that having leadership doesn't mean being oppressed, right? And that we're spending too much time taking down whoever's in charge around us because we define it as, we define kind of almost being managed as being being told what to do arbitrarily, which is not the case. And I just heard that in, in what you said. I want to come back to the Anselmo moment, but I'm wondering if, if you have made similar observations in your, in your work in the field. Yeah, absolutely. I think the idea of a collective is a really powerful, maybe romantic and maybe utopian idea um, that you would have to have a lot of time to really, to really participate in where it's truly a collective. And I think mostly in the world that we live in, what I've seen with collective structures, structures that falls on a few people in terms of the leadership or management, and yet everyone is saying it's a collective. Right. And, and then so therefore resentment starts to build up. And, you know, I mean, that's a pattern I've seen. Now maybe a younger generation will figure something else out about it. So I think early on as I, as I participated in collectives and looked at collectives, I knew that there was something really important in in collaboration and in this leadership i think we one of the models that we use in dance in a movement based practice is comes from a um something that i think developed out of contact improvisation but i'm not sure and it's called flocking and uh, you'll have a group of people moving together. And then as it shifts, somebody else is in the front. And now the group follows that person. And then there may be another shift. And now the group follows that person. So we talk about leadership and followership. That that there's times where I got, okay, this I, I want to support the leadership that is at hand. That doesn't mean I'm silent. It doesn't mean I sulk in the background because I don't have power. Uh, it means that you ask questions that are around building a container of support. And I think that's where we need more practice in that muscle of what does it really mean to follow and support even when you have questions, and I don't mean blindly follow, but how do you frame those questions in a way that they expand the leadership and expand the leader's capacity and your capacity as opposed to diminish? Um, and particularly when there's a misstep, everybody's going to have a misstep. Every leader is going to have a yes. misstep. And what I love the book that Adrian Marie Brown put out, We Will Not Cancel right. Us. It's a small, and this idea of jumping immediately to the public tearing down um, and the steps that we miss 
everyone is, you know, on a psychological level, is it, is it, you know, I think like, is it something where we, we're still mad because our parents aren't perfect? Right, right. <laughs> you know? That's good. That's good. I think about it that way too. Yeah, so mad about that. Um, um, but that that to understand that the, the 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 basis of being human. I mean, the, the being human is that you will make missteps. So our focus is on that. Um, I think Lizzie Cooper Davis, who works with us, articulated this the best: that the wobbling is necessary. That's part of the growth. That's part of the work that you wobble to find balance. But the wobbling is the work. Even yes, in itself, sir. the wobbling and the recovery and the and the finding center, that is as much as the work as being on center. Yes, that is so powerful and so true. And and yeah, the, the propensity to cancel makes it really hard for us to learn. And we're also afraid. Yes. We can be so afraid. And I often give the example of of a of a toddler, you know, like what 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 do you yeah. mean you can't walk yet? What's wrong with you? You know, it just seems so. It means so. It seems so silly. I I want to yeah. I want to come back to some of the things that you said about ensemble, because one of the things I'm really interested in a practice that I'm immersed in is this practice of emergent dialogue, um, and it's, it's it's this practice that is designed to bring our attention, nurture, interbeing, right? Like uh, the idea is that there is something that is alive between us that is greater than us and that if we bring our attention to it, it wants to speak, you know, and it will speak through you. And so much of the practice is letting go of what you think you know so that so that what knows may speak and it's powerful because you're in a group of people and there are missteps sometimes you get intellectual about it sometimes you say something that is just your idea and what's powerful about it is like the field feels it it's like everyone knows that 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 wasn't it you know but the only way you can approach it is by taking that risk, right? So it's almost like everybody yeah. will, will kind of quote unquote get it wrong is not the right word, but but not land it um, somewhere. And, and and you know that you don't land it. And so you kind of back away a little bit in in discomfort and mild embarrassment, even if nobody's judging you. And then you gotta kind of show up, show back up for it. And and in that practice, Jawala, something that I think is so important is you do not, it's collective, but you do not lose yourself in it, right? Uh, and, and so I'm often, I often say that part of the training that I, that I offer people when I coach people through and is, is this idea of, of developing self-sovereignty, right? And I think of mm-hmm. self-sovereignty as your capacity to bring yourself back to coherence when you're triggered. So you're not asking other people, you're not asking the environment around you to shape itself around your wound. You are taking responsibility for yourself. We have this great ability to disappear into the collective. We know how to do that, right? Like from, from, from mobs to football games, we know how to disappear 
to to mega churches, right? To to lose our agency in the collective endeavor. But that's not the same thing that you're talking about when you talk about an ensemble, right? Because because you gotta show up for it. It's it's shared, but your self expression is integral to it for it to work. You have to show up, and I I, I think what you just what you just said about you know when we're when we're in this practice together it's it's really how you how you show up in the ability to see and own what is happening and particularly in in in, in your wounds and 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 I'm I I don't I'm not making light of anyone's trauma or wounds. I know that I got a whole bunch. And I, I it's it's how could I hold any performance or talk or program or gathering to be responsible for all of the wounds and traumas that are um that I carry. And what I what I I think the challenge that I've been thinking about a lot or the question I'm asking myself is it just only a selected few in this planet, on this planet, in this lifetime, that can have a more enlightened consciousness about this? Is that really true? Or is it that what our work is, is to provide ways that, that people's hearts, minds, will open to that there is more for them and there is more they can do. And I've seen it, I've seen it on a small scale work that when I change how I am in the space, uh, others change around me. That's right. And and so I've really been thinking about, you know, this this a lot as I, as I know the power that when I when I can be cognizant and own my own wounds and trauma and not expect um, everything that could possibly trigger me to to take responsibility for it, I like if, during the Black Lives Matter protest I that were going on. I you know I live in in in, in, in an area in Brooklyn where it was right by where they were happening. And I got so angry at the protesters. I was just getting angry. Why don't they stop? And then I realized it took me, I was like, wait a minute, Jawali, why are you angry at the protesters? This isn't. <laughs> and I realized that I had, I was having serious PTSD from the helicopters mm -hmm. and from growing up in the 60s in the riots during the riots in the, uh, or the urban rebellions in Kansas City. Um, after King was assassinated, uh, that happened, and the helicopters and the police snipers in the helicopters, and the um, and just the constant. I, mean, I remember, I remember hiding up underneath a bed, uh, and I and I had completely forgotten about all of that, and as the helicopters were just constant. 
a constant during the Black Lives Matter protest, it, it, it took a while before I could understand what was triggering right. me. Now, does that mean that they should, they should all go away because I'm, you know, I'm having this reaction? No, I, I have the consciousness to do my work. How do I provide an environment, container, space for other people to be able to, to, to do that? That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, because it just demands a high degree of self-reflection to to not be reactive and to to accept that that there's something happening inside of you i know that um i have i think i have made significant progress about this but for a long time i i felt beset by what i would call movement fundamentalism or some people oh. might refer to it as 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 wokeness i often refer to it as that too and and i just felt besieged i felt like i couldn't do my work work that challenged people emotionally and spiritually because everybody needed a trigger warning for everything and everything was interrupted by a process and and yeah. and i realized that the big realization for me when I started to look at what in it was mine was that I grew up in a religious fundamentalist community where mm. there, it was held together by a threat of exile, right? Where you could mm. say some things and not say others, where you could get kicked out. And it looked and smelled a lot the same. And, and so it's not that my analysis of what tends to go on in those spaces is wrong, but I was reacting as a 12-year-old boy rather than a 40-something-year-old man, right? So then the power of my critique or my, my correction would be lost because people would just see a, a man reacting like a child about something he doesn't like, right? And so that's, that's been a, an important part of my own journey Right, the way this 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 trauma does show up, but but it is our job to tend to it, right? Absolutely, and to create the. I mean, when I coach dance students, and you know, we we work, and when I say we collectively, urban bushwomen in our in our circle, um, we work to set up a container, a space where you can work through the things. What I ask people, like if something comes up, I ask people to make an agreement not to run out the room crying. So because then we don't have an ability or stomp out the room mad. We don't have a, an ability to work through it. Then somebody like, okay, do you need, do you go take care of them? Do you take care of the group? Do you, do you stop what you're doing? All of these things, but to, but to continue to work through what's ever coming up to work through it and allow it to speak through what you're doing, what you're creating, what you're, what you're noticing, not to suppress it, not to repress it. Um, even if it's, even if it's something that makes you want to be physically violent, you, you, you want to definitely not act out on that, but there's ways that, you know, as a creative person, I can, I can, 
I can use that. We have a we have a dance called the stomp dance. I created in 1987. And so over over the course of time, we started doing it as lecture demonstrations. And, you know, I would ask young, young children before I, you know, I did it. I said, you know, what do you do? You know, do you ever get angry? And they would all say, yeah. I said, what do you do when you get angry? And they were like, I hit my sister. I said, you know, <laughs> You know, they would say all these things that they did when they were angry. And I said, okay. I said, I'd like to offer this dance for you, to you, as this, I was angry and this dance became a way that I could share my anger with others in a way that wouldn't hurt someone. But I could share the expression of it. I could share the emotion of it. I could share the catharsis of it. And, and and it doesn't physically hurt someone. So, you know, so then we would do the dance and I would say, and I'd like you to think about what can you make when you feel like you're angry like that? When you feel that kind of anger, what can you make? Maybe you write a poem, maybe you draw a picture. Now I know people may think like, ah, oh, that seems, but the practice of honoring the emotion and transforming that emotion into something creative is not a practice that you can start too early. Right. It's a needed, necessary, whether you transform it into something spiritual. But it, it is the alchemy of that transfer, of acknowledging, not right. denying. I feel angry. I am pissed. Right. And, and moving that to something that can be shared if you choose with That's others. Great. That is so good. I, I was, I was, I'm glad you went there, but I just love the word, the word alchemy for what you do and, and what you're teaching here. And um, I was just thinking about our work and, and where it's different and where it's similar. And one thing that's really special and different and potent about yours is that it's, that it's somatic, that it's about movement. Yeah. And there's so much more we can process and understand and work through by moving our bodies than by thinking something through yeah. and talking something through. Yeah. And I, I yeah. just wonder how, how much, <laughs> what, what else would you say about, about that? I, I, I think you're absolutely, the, the moving, you know, we're in a, we have come to be, as a way of being where movement and singing are not, the things that we do in our work environment. But we know for many, it's not a romantic notion. We know for many, many centuries, people worked and sang, they moved and sang. They, that, that, became, that became a way. It didn't mean that they didn't repress others. It didn't mean that, you know, uh, you know violence wasn't there. But we know that this is a way that, that the hum, human beings, we, you know, we feel it's in our bodies. And, you know, and sometimes you know, I look at I look at meetings of world leaders and different things, and I you know, and I wanted to say, take that tie off. It's choking you. It's choking your breath. It's choking the ability to breathe and see and and feel. Now, maybe that's superficial. You know, I don't know, but I there's a reason why that we you know, that we are, we're, when in the, in the, you know, I, I, I think back to the 60s and 70s when 
women decided like, we're not going to wear these girdles anymore. And of course they've come <laughs> back. Um, there is something that that is freeing in natural movement. And when it's guided and, and then you can direct your attention to what are you feeling and allowing your breath? I, I'd like to, I'd, I, I, I know that that's maybe a Pollyanna-ish desire, but I'd love to see movement practice as essential as, essential as eating yes. and drinking water be in the daily practice of our of our community leaders, our artistic leaders, our world leaders. Um, I yeah. love that. That's Amen. Amen. That is definitely what is needed. I mean, yeah, our ancestors, certainly people of color, would not have survived if we hadn't kept on dancing and singing together, even under the worst of things, after working 14, 16 hour days every day, you would still make room for that because it was the only way to somatize the trauma of daily life, you know? And uh, Yeah, the, the practice of shouting in the African-American church, shouting is a, a release, a quest towards liberation, a liberatory practice, uh, a survival practice. You know that that testifying physical shouting. Um, you know you're working it out, and you know sometimes when I would, you know when I when I first saw crumping, and I saw I said, oh, this is the urban youth shout. It is a way they're working it out. Beautiful. Maybe they know it, maybe they don't know it, but they're working it out. It doesn't mean that it's. It's 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 one it's one part of the it's one part of the thing that we have to do. But yeah, I'd see them and I'd like, oh, they're That's working beautiful. it out. That's beautiful. It's always yeah, something if you're paying attention with your heart, something steers inside of you when you witness that kind of that kind of expression, yeah. even if it's in an informal space, it, it really does touch you. You know something powerful is happening. Thank you for the gift of your attention. If there's something here that resonates for you, something that feels true and good, think about a friend that you could share it with. We curate for each other. And that's the only way the good stuff spreads. Jolly, I wanna make sure I touch at least on some of your biography. Um, you mentioned Kansas, uh, um, Kansas City, did you say? Kansas yeah. City, Missouri. And um, I'm just a little curious as to what you can tell us about where where you come from and, and how did this vocation strike you? How did you know? Oh, well, you know, I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, and what people call the inner city, so uh, or de facto segregation. It was, it was um, a completely segregated city. I didn't know that as a kid. I just thought, I thought Kansas City was all black. I didn't realize that it was the area that I lived in. But um, the high school I went to, Central High, I think maybe had, 
I think it had 3,000 students and maybe two of them were white. Um, so you, everything about the environment I grew up in was all black. And I didn't come into social contact with white folk until I went to college. So I think everything about how I experienced life, experiencing it, not what I was looking at on TV, because that was a different story, but what I was actually experiencing in the church, on the playground, in the, you know, um, in the parks, in, you know, with, with my, with my friends and neighbors was all black. And the, and the internalized racial oppression that was a part of that, as well as the, these deep, um, you know, spiritual community practices, all of that was inside of that. So it literally, the first time that I really started having social interaction with, with white folks, I was in college. And I remember being in a conversation and I couldn't figure out what the person was saying to me. It was a white person and I couldn't, and I know I'm, I was looking at them and you know how like little children, when they're trying to process information and they kind of have this blank thing, you know, little babies in particular, they're processing and they're trying to, I could not figure out what was being said. The coding, the codes, the, I I didn't know if they were insulting me or inviting me, admonishing me. I really couldn't figure it out. It made me very, very insecure and nervous. Um, so I thought, okay, I got to figure this thing out because I don't know. I don't know how to negotiate mm -hmm. this. I know in my neighborhood, I know the danger signs. I know the warning signs. I know the cues. Sometimes doesn't mean that sometimes sometimes I could miss them, but you know I I, I know them. I didn't know them, and I. So I kind of went on like, okay, I need to understand this, and I need to understand me, and I need to understand both of these things as me. Wow. Um. And so that, so the work of urban bushwomen, you know, is when I went to college and I was studying, you know, all different kinds of dance forms, you know, ballet, modern, you know, you know, I would say white European or white American contemporary forms or modern forms. I could see the influences of black folks in there. And I was, you know, curious and attracted, but I also said, I've got to, at the same time, I, I don't want to blot me out. Right. So how do I embrace these things? So, you know, in college, you know, I had a spiritual community that was a part of, and I had a feminist community that was a part of, and I had a black um, uh, political community that I was a part of, and I had a party group that I was a part of, and, you know, and, and I think when I formed Urban Bushwomen, it was really an integration. Like all of these things don't have to exist as separate ideas, but they can, they can come together in a holistic framework, an ensemble of creating that recognizes all of it in all of us and not, not segmented. Powerful. So that's, that's, that truly was 
what urban what I was seeking to do with urban bushwoman was integration. Yes, yes, uh, yes. Uh, 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 an integration towards wholeness, an inclusion yes. of, of of yourself and all of your parts in it. Yeah, which is different yes. from uh, the kind of integration that migrants are often asked to do or native folk, oh. right? Where it's like, come and be part of what we have already established, right? Come to the table, but don't let the conversation at the table change, right? It, yeah. When I'm talking about somatic, you know, we use the word integration and somatic right. practice where you... Or you're able to, and that, and that's really the place you know that I'm that I'm that I'm coming from, like like even in um, uh, you know, movement practice, you know, we talk about upper body, lower body, and there's a place in the dancer's development where they begin to oh. integrate how the upper body and lower body really you, you integrate that you 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 figure that out as a little baby. But the integration of it as a dancer, where you start to have the mastery, where these two things can work together, different, different, you know, your lower body can be doing one thing, your upper body's doing another. But that that's part of an integration that we that we that we train for. And so those are the things I call on when I think about, you know, when I think about dance. And and I want to go back to you when you said, how do I know know I was gonna do this? Um I, I grew up dancing with my sister Donna in my community dance studio, and I, I thought dance was something you did as a hobby. I, I had no idea you could do it as a profession until I went to college and saw that you could major in dance. But all my life, I danced. But something happened, I believe it was in the seventh grade. It, it's one of those moments that I can still see very clearly um, the teacher, you know, asked us what did we want to be when we grew up. And there's there was a woman, Marcia Van, uh, who was sitting in front of me. And the you know teacher asked her, and she said, "I want to be a choreographer." And I had never, literally, never heard that word before. But when she said that word, I I literally thought I was going to pass out. The room went black, and I felt like this shaking vibration like like the ground shaking just like like an earthquake and i mean literally the literally the room went black and i i i think i remember asking what does that word mean and and cuz we called it dance routines but i hadn't heard that word so so when i say i i think that was something of I had an experience of something that would be a part of my life. I, I, that's what I say when we mm-hmm. listen. So that was profound. And I think children have this all the time, that they're, they're experiencing something that is about a potential pathway, because we always we have a choice. Um, and it's a powerful experience. And how do you listen to that? How do you honor? How do you? How does a child even know to talk about it? Because I didn't talk about it for probably way until maybe until my forties. Uh, that that experience that I had, because you know, it's like, did did I was I crazy? Did I have that? Was that really 
did that really happen? Um, you know, we, we tend to invalidate these deep experiences that scientists can't right, quantify. Right, right. Well, I am so glad you're sharing it now because I think it's something so important for to hear. Um, there are these moments when whatever it is that's the creative life force of the universe is is speaking to us directly and sending us on a path. And, and you just know that that's the journey that you're going to be on. And it doesn't mean that it's going to be an easy journey, but it is yours. Wow. It is yours. Yeah. Um, you have, there's something deeply uh, spiritual to your presence and to how you're speaking about these things that cannot be explained by science. And you have made mention of the church and, um, I know of other practices that, that you and I have shared in. Where are you on your spiritual journey? How are you making sense of it now? What is it? Yeah, how are you bringing your attention to the mystery? I, it is the mystery. You know, I think what I'm noticing and paying attention to more now is young people around me. I was a completely, I was a wild child. I was angry all the time at home. And there was lots of, you know, there was things going on in my home, but I was, I was, you know, potentially violent. I cursed, you know, I, I just was this, you know, I am, I am convinced that in under, in today's world, I would have been institutionalized, over-medicated, all of these things. My parents let me be feral. I don't know how that happened, why, what what they understood. You know, I don't know if it's the thing that when you have a lot of kids, it's like, you don't, you, you know, it's like, all right, she, she crazy. All right, hope she survives. Um, so, but I think that there's, there's, what I, what I'm thinking about now is that there was so much energy force in me that I did not know how to channel. Mm -hmm. And that's why dance was so important. There was so much life force, energy force um, in me and so, so many ways that that energy force was raised by anger. It, it's what anger made me feel alive you know, anger. So it's like, it's like that raising of the shock. It made me feel alive. Yes, yes. So hey, alive. I'm going to be angry anytime, you know. And, and so I think in my spiritual practice now, well, certainly I'm trying to understand, like, first of all, I'm just interested in joy. Amen. I'm really interested in joy. I'm interested in how I can pay attention to all these things, but really pay attention to young people. Is there a way that when I recognize that and people want to throw them away or cancel them or, you know, when I see a young person get inappropriately angry at something, is there, yeah, and, and yeah, there's harm. You know, there definitely can be harm, you know. But I'm also curious about the other side of it. And is there a role, as I continue to do my work, that I can play in that? It's yeah, a question for beautiful. me. So I think in my in this part of my spiritual question journey it is about what do i know that can be of service yeah. to others yeah and and what i'm hearing what i'm hearing underneath that is also uh it's not just what you do because so much of what you do is of service but 
but you're bringing a, a very compassionate lens. Uh, yeah. I think that's often what is missing in some of the spaces we're talking about. Uh, compassion. Yeah. And I know that for me, um, I have caused harm in my own life. And um, that's been hard to contend with. But um, being on the other side of that, being the person that causes it, has really made me deeply compassionate for when somebody else does, when somebody else causes harm. If, if, if I see even an inkling of, of the possibility for redemption, I'll bring, my, I'll bring attention to it. I'll try to bring some care wherever I can. Um, because those are the times when we feel worse about ourselves, when we think that something in us is bad. That's actually when we can lose ourselves the most, you know, and end up yeah. causing more harm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I'm, again, I'm enjoying, you know, I'm at a certain point in my life where, you know, lots of things are coming to me that are good. And um, I'm, I am enjoying that. Uh, and, and it, I will say there is a confidence I've developed that, uh, you know, for so long you carry the imposter syndrome. And you're like, oh, okay, well, maybe that piece was good. Maybe that was a one-off or maybe, you know, that that I doubt myself. Now I'm kind of like, okay, I, I do know what I know. doesn't mean I know everything. and doesn't mean I don't have a lot to learn and make mistakes, but I do know what I know. And And in that knowing... I can recognize, yeah, I think compassion is the definitely the big part of my practices to is to is to see beyond the harm to to something else. I had one of my mentors, and I, I never understood this work that she did until recently. She was very involved in anti-death penalty work and uh, would communicate with those on death row. And, uh, you know, it was a spiritual practice. And I, I really didn't, I thought of it at first as liberalism because I was anti-death penalty because of the way it was meted out to black folk, the, injust the way it was dealt with in terms of the injustice. Um, it wasn't a moral ethical place for me. It was like, it's unjust. Black folks get the death penalty, you know, white folks walk. Um, and it, this is a white woman. And I was, I had to start changing that through my contact with her of this deeply spiritual practice. And then I think it was Brian Stevenson wow. that I heard say, like, you are more than the worst moment in your life you are more than the worst moment in your life. Now, maybe the exceptions for this would be a sociopath because they're not able right. to process this, you know, or psychopath, they're not able to process it. So they, you know, it's, that's, that's, a, that's a different story. But you are more than the worst moment yes. in your life. Yes. And the worst thing that you've done. And that's something that I carry. I carry. I just loved his work. Um, 
it's 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 really carried That's beautiful. Me. That resonates so deeply. I want to ask you a, a question that might take us in a different direction, but as you were speaking about this death penalty work, look, I don't know all of the admonishments or all of the lessons of all of the religions of the world. Um, but, you know, I grew up in a Christian context and still hold a lot of care for for a lot of what was learned there as, as well as, you know, as well as some wounds from the way it was misinterpreted or misunder, you know, just the way it was held in the community I lived in. But it still feels like one of the religions that really centers visiting people in prison, you know? And I feel like that's that that's so important. Like never mind the death penalty, but when you know, one of the beatitudes, you know, I was in prison and you visited me. Uh that says yeah. so much about this this compassion and this care that, that that we're talking about. But if I had to 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 take a turn here, maybe an unexpected turn, is um um thinking about what I am aware of that you haven't received the award, the MacArthur Genius Award. And that, you know, that that brings a kind of attention to you, that brings a kind of freedom to you, that brings a kind of acknowledgement to you. It puts you um, in a, among remarkable peers doing very different work. Uh, it might even invite the envy of other peers. It's such a beautiful, amazing thing to get. And I, I couldn't let you go without asking, how does it feel? What has it done? What is the impact of it in your life? It's yeah. great. It's great. Uh, I, I will say that, you know, I remember when uh, there was a, a, a younger artist that got the MacArthur and people were upset, you know, at this artist. I was like, well, first of all, this artist didn't apply. It's not something you apply for. It's not something. And then what do you think this person's going to say? Oh, I'm not worthy yet. Here, you take, you know, I, I can't receive the money. So people being, I mean, you know, I because of that reaction towards this artist that, that had gotten it. So by the time when I got it, I was able to just kind of not think about that. I honestly, I was just talking about this last night. I don't think I could have handled success in my 30s or 40s at this level, that amount of money. I don't, I, I think it would have taken me into a mm -hmm. deep hole. Um, what I love about it now is that, cause I've got, I've got some great creative projects that I'm working on and it's allowing me to think, it's allowing me to just think and dream and, and, and know that, at least for this MacArthur panel, whoever's on that, because it's always very confidential, you don't know anything, that they were able to see mm -hmm. me and they were able to see the, 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 the fruit of the labor of these last 40 years and of my life. And that feels great, really good. Great. Well, congratulations. I, I was besides okay. myself. You know, I've been, I have the privilege of knowing uh, a number of people over the years and at least the ones that I know are truly remarkable individuals. I'm sure there are some people that might not be, but uh, I was just so happy, so truly happy for you. And I'm, I'm happy to ask. And 
And uh, somebody like you that's a true creative to have some freedom to just like not be constrained has to be so amazing. Which, which brings me to, to, to another question, which is, you know, what is inspiring you right now? And are you working on something that can be spoken of? Yeah. There's two, two big projects that I'm working on right now. Well, let me talk about one that I just finished, um, which was an amazing, I was a, one of the choreographers or choreographic consultants for a work called Ritual mm, of Breath. Wow. Um, that was written by um, composer, it was an opera, uh, a small uh, opera in that it had one singer and one dancer and a small um, chamber group of musicians. And it was uh, the, about in, written on the life of Eric Garner and through the lens of his daughter. And then, of course, his daughter. And it was called Ritual of Breath, The Right to Resist. Um, and when I was first approached by it, I was like, I don't know about this. I don't know that that's the right thing that you can make an opera about. I, I, I don't know. And, you know, again, that voice that go forward, go forward with it. Um, the work was extraordinary. The director is Nigel Smith. Um, and uh, uh, Eric Garner's mother, Gwen Carr, was involved. And when they did it on the West Coast, um, Oscar Grant's mother came. And it, 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 the work, what's extraordinary about this work is it, it is both a collective grieving process, but it is not poverty. I mean, it's not pain mm -hmm. porn. Mm -hmm. And that takes a certain level of artistic brilliance to do that. And so working on this, when we did it at Dartmouth, the first night, you it's, it's 70 minutes, no intermission, you could hear a pin drop. I mean... And I thought, okay, well, the second night's going to be more students. They're going to be restless. They're going to be, you're going to hear coughing. You know, all the things that you hear. Again, second night, lots of students, you could hear a pin drop. And I was told the same thing that I wasn't with the, when it went to um, Stanford. So that was something for me that says you can really create these ways for us to acknowledge the harm and the grief and create something of yes. beauty that's not contradictory. Yeah. And they're not, and you can create something of beauty that is not that's exploitive. Um, so what I'm working on now um, is a work called Intelligence. It's an opera for Houston Grand Opera. Um, I'll be directing and choreographing it, and it'll go up sometime in 2023. Uh, and it's the story, it's called Intelligence. It's the story based on a true story of a woman named Elizabeth Van Loo, who was a white woman during the Civil War, who came from one of the wealthiest families in Richmond, Virginia. Um, she had had a governess who was uh, an abolitionist, so it influenced her. And she also saw a horrible slave auction. This is all in her journal. Uh, when she was young, that had that the child was separated from mm. the mother, that had a horrible impact on her, or what, or you could say a good impact. Um, so when her father died, she freed all of uh, all of the people that were enslaved under under him, and she took one into care, 
that had that was three and sent her to be educated. But she also formed aspiring for the Union Army. So she created this whole to get secrets to the Union uh, to the Union Army to conf- to defeat the Confederate Army. And the black woman that was in her care after um, she was freed became part of that spy ring. Now we know that part to be true, but we everything else is kind of like we've kind of made up. Um, but the story is, is is so compelling, and the question of the liberal white person who has done good, but has also done right. harm, and the black person who is seeking their liberation. That ultimately is is this is the story. And that that it's it's an operatic form. It's opera, it's grand opera. I mean, it won't have a chorus. It's eight. It'll be Urban Bushwomen, and these amazing seven singers. So that I'm really excited with. I, it's for it's the composer is Jake Hagee, and the librettist is Jean Shear. And I'm just really excited to be in this world of opera. What I'm loving about it is the emotional life of something is the opera extends it. It's not like, okay, you have it and then it's over. You, you live in these tragedies and in these deep emotions for long periods of time creatively. And, you know, I, I love that because I think that's a hallmark of my, of my work. So that's, that's one amazing. of the projects. And Both the, of them are amazing, amazing to hear about. The other project is called SCAT right now and it comes from the term scat singing um and it's my family's history in terms of you know my, my family's history of the great migration coming uh to kansas city in the jazz era being part of the whole jazz scene my mother's aspirations to be a jazz singer and dancer uh, as a dark-skinned woman you know those dreams being thwarted and my father's aspirations to be a black entrepreneur and those dreams were thwar- thwarted and then the ultimate destruction towards one another, you know, that I think was so much a part of the community that I was in that, you know, something's like right in front of you, dangled in front of you, but you, it's like Sisyphus. You're, you know, just as you get that rock up and then you're, you know, you're, you're, you're rolling that rock again. And so how that turns in on, but at the same time, so it's both tragedy, it's both, it's all of the things, the big things of opera, except it will be through jazz. Amazing. Amazing. Jazz. It is, uh, it is uh, such a delight to, to be in conversation with you about, about your creation and your creative part and to just even be able to touch what it is that is moving you and how it is moving you because you come to life in a certain way, you transmit it yeah. and... Uh, yeah, it's definitely deeply, deeply touching from here, from where I am. I um, I want to ask you a question. I want to, I want to ask you if you would go through a very, very simple process that, that I ask people to go through at the end of the podcast, and and then I'll ask you to share anything else that you want us to know about, anything that you think might have gone unsaid, or, or anything, any, yeah, anything you want to say, we're in your hands. But before that, and, and with, with your consent, I would love to do just a little time traveling into the future. So mm. the way the way we do it is, you know, I just invite you to to see if you can 
if you can uh, place yourself closer to your your last days and uh in your imagination you can travel forward and and with with blessings and grace you will be coherent of thought and you'll be able to speak and and so if you can see that 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 future jawale that is coming to to the end of her her walk here on this earth in this body if you can picture her in your mind's eye and in your heart and uh the question then becomes what would she say to you so that you could apply it right now right like what what gift of earned wisdom would she be able to offer to you that you could start working on now be in loving Amen, joy huh? you know have yeah. fun there's there's so much wonder in the world and i think i am a person who's always been you know wondrous and um i you know to not lose you know even when times are hard i mean because I, you know i've gone through rough rough times and the one so to 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 understand in those rough you know like during the pandemic the worst of the pandemic you know as i was i got stuck in new york um i started just walking and i would walk down to the water uh in dumbo and just the wonder of silence that was going on the wonder of the water and just looking at you know these things that beauty is so much around us even in the what you think is ugliness i i i remember the artist david hammonds in harlem that he would go into these empty lots and take you know thunderbird bottles and all these different things and create an art installation uh, he would make beauty and then the police would tear it down which was stupid so that it just could become a littered area again don't make right. art. Right. <laughs> that was crazy. Um, but that that you that you can make beauty from anything, any part of your life, any the most horrible, inhumane thing, you can find a way to make beauty yes. and share it. And that beauty may be the beauty of anger. It may be the beauty of um, resistance, of resilience. It it it. it it's in so many different ways, but it would be to always see Amen. beauty. Amen. Wow, I can't imagine. Yeah, there's. It, it is just. It is just as as wise as it gets to 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 keep your eye to keep your eye on it. You know, your attention. Thank you so much, Jawale. Um, what a gift! What a gift to be in your company and your presence. I'm so excited for for people that listen to get to know you uh, and and hear from you directly you're you're a real inspiration and i'm really grateful for the generosity of spirit and for your saying yes with such a enthusiasm it, me it meant a lot to me i wonder if before, oh, yeah. if before we go if there's anything 
you want to tell us about any last, you know, anything that, that you're working on? Or the, yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about <laughs> you. I, you know, I think when, in the work that you did with Urban Bushwoman, what was so transformative about it is that you led with love. And I remember on the conversation when you were talking about the values by which you led, me and the board chair, Tammy, at the time, we, you know, you said love and we were like, excuse me, could you say that again? It was like, we, we, like could, you, could you repeat that? We couldn't even process that you were saying the word love. <laughs> Side of, you know, like talking about strategic planning. And, you know, we laughed about it because we were like, wait a minute, what, could you, uh, uh, maybe I misunderstood it, like, what did you say? Um, and, I, and I think that that was so clear in the mm. process that you brought us to. Uh, it was such an important time in Urban Bushwoman because I, it was the time I put the company on hiatus because I felt like we had gotten the running of the organization more important as to the why we had an organization and what was the organization there for there for, for you know to what was it what was it to do and it had just gotten to be the point that it was there because the organization was there because the organization was there and i was willing like okay let's just stop all of this and really look at wait a minute, why are we doing this? And how are we doing this? Um, and to center love in that process, you just don't know. It was so mm. important and it is still so oh, very important. Oh, you just gave me goosebumps. I felt that deeply. And 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 just to mm. say back, and I really do have that my body is responding to the mm. truth of what you're sharing. And for, for people to know, you know, this hiatus, this was before the grant right this so so it was a truly courageous move to say we're either going to do this for what it's meant to be or 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 we won't because an organization is not what it is it's, it's something greater than that and uh it's something I yeah i was willing to let it all go i was like okay if this if it served its time its That's purpose right. then fine I, I i didn't want to hold on to something just That's to hold powerful. on to it that's really powerful. I want to I want to thank you again, Jaole, for your presence and and your care and your devotion to to the truth that is moving through you and to to your people and to our people and to the the gift of art and, and body and movement. It's a it's a blessing to to walk the earth alongside you. Thank, thank you, Javran. Oh, many blessings yes. to you. Signal versus noise. There's so much competing for our attention. And I am so glad that you stayed with us through the end of the podcast. It should mean that you're finding something meaningful here. Hopefully, something worth sharing. And so I'm asking again that you think of somebody who would be touched by this conversation. Who wants to be a part of it some way. It is a decentralized conversation. It is a way in which we're changing ourselves by leaning in towards each other in places like this and in the exchange of these ideas. So who's a person or two that will be specially moved by what you've heard here today? Send them a text, an email. Let them know we're here. We are not trying to reach everybody. but We want to reach the right people. We want to keep having this decentralized conversation. 
We want to keep working on getting right to the edge of the evolution of consciousness and culture to see what we find here together. Thank you again for being a part of this. Liking the podcast helps. Subscribing is definitely a good thing. Feedback is always welcomed. Stay in touch.